Thank you, brother. So good to be able to praise the Lord uh, collectively as a men's ministry on Tuesday night, isn't it, brothers? Yeah, as my brother said, nothing like a room full of men passionate about Christ, singing together with one voice. So what a blessing to be able to have brothers that can do that for us. All right, turning your Bibles to James chapter 1. We are back in James tonight, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12. Last week, I got a chance to listen to Pastor Kellen's message, and he did such a great job, didn't he? Just bringing the word with passion. So now we're in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, and I've titled this message tonight, Putting Our Possessions in Perspective. Putting Our Possessions in Perspective. Let me read our text, and then we'll get right into it. Verse 9 of James chapter 1 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Yeah, amen. Well, for years, as I've shared with some of you um, over our time here at Compass, I've shared with some of you that I worked with an evangelical ministry that was sort of focused on resourcing gospel-centered churches for relational evangelism and just for reaching out to their respective communities and third world countries in particular. And most of these churches, uh, as I ministered amongst them, at least in uh, other countries, were located in poverty-stricken areas of that particular country where, where their reality, the reality of these local churches was severe poverty or a lack of basic human resources like water and, and food and medicine and supplies and sanitation and, and other stuff, things that we here in America might take for granted. You know, I learned a lot during those years. People often ask me, hey, so what, what was your training like leading into the pastorate and all of that? And I always share, obviously, about seminary and then, obviously, the context of the home being a training ground, one aspect of our training ground, seminary, as I said, my education, the context of the local church. But also, I think this, that particular experience of working with that organization was huge for me as far as ministry experience, because I got to witness how those believers, those Christians in foreign countries like South, in Southeast Asia and Latin America in particular... Those believers, even in the midst of horrendous life situations, were happy people. They were joyful believers. Even in the midst of scarcity and poverty, they were joyful and quite content. A lot of them were poor. Most of them were poor. You also had, however, in many of these places, not only Christians who were poor, but also few Christians who actually did pretty well in their country, who actually were living very decent lives having a decent home. They didn't have to worry a whole lot about the next meal, where the next meal was going to come from, about starvation. Starvation really wasn't their biggest concern, but it was not placing their confidence, these believers, who were more well-off in material things in their own country, in the midst of all of this mass devastation. And you know, brothers, as I think about that experience and that ministry, it's very similar to the historical situation of James's readers when we think about it. These, primary, these were primarily Jewish Christians uh, to whom James is writing who had been scattered outside of Palestine, 
and they were undergoing serious trials, some of a financial nature. There were some who were okay socially and financially, even wealthy. We're going to find that out later on in the book of James. But the bulk of them, the vast majority of these Jewish Christians, primarily Jewish Christians, were poor, just trying to make it. And so, still in the context of trials in the Christian life, James transitions us in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1 so that he addresses now this specific trial that these believers are experiencing of prosperity and poverty in the Christian life. He moves us, in other words, from trials in general to one specific trial, and that is one of poverty and prosperity in the lives of these believers. And we're going to see that they're both believers, these these two categories uh, whom he addresses. This is such an important passage for us to contemplate as I kept thinking about this, brothers, for us to consider. Because I'm sure you would agree, in America we are quite wealthy, aren't we? We are quite wealthy. You might say, wait a minute, Pastor Kempis, I'm barely making it here in South OC right now, right? Especially after the utility bills are skyrocketing now. Can I get an amen? My goodness, what in the world is going on? Just talking about that a little while ago. So it might feel like, no, we're not, we're not we're very prosperous here, especially in South OC. But the truth is, brothers, that in comparison to the rest of the world, we're actually quite wealthy. How many of you have had an opportunity to, tra- to travel to for, uh, other foreign countries, especially poverty-stricken areas? Yeah, so you can identify with this, right? In comparison to the rest of the world, certain parts of the world, Third world countries were quite rich. I recall being floored many years ago in this ministry where I worked. By what I, by, but by what I could buy um, it, it, with, in that particular country by just bypassing one mocha frappuccino here in, in America. I'm telling you, we did a research on this and we even did this campaign called Skip One. And the whole design of it was skip out on a mocha frappuccino or some kind of a Starbucks drink so that you can actually donate those $5 to this particular uh, mercy network that we had of gospel preaching churches who we were resourcing. You can donate your $5 instead of buying that particular drink. You know what I found out? That if I skipped a Starbucks mocha for $5 or $6 or $7 now, really, I could actually help feed a family of five in a place like Myanmar or Nepal for four weeks. Four weeks, I kid you not. I could buy them four weeks worth of rice, four weeks worth of beans, some kind of bread, perhaps some other vegetables. That's just one example. So we did this whole campaign called Skip One where we had people do this. And it was amazing to see the way that we, could, we were able to help and put resources in the hands of these gospel preaching churches so that they could do relational evangelism and outreach in their particular communities kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? In comparison to most parts of the world, we are quite rich. And so do you see why we need to put our possessions in right perspective? James needed to do that for these believers as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And brothers, we need the same thing as well. And so as he continues his instruction on on external trials in the Christian life, he now addresses the unique trial of poverty and prosperity in the Christian life. And we're going to learn here that both the poor and the rich must be diligent to guard their hearts with respect to material possessions, brothers. And so let's start here, okay, if you're taking notes. First, if you're experiencing need, 
You need to train yourself and learn to rejoice in your royal status. If you're experiencing need, rejoice in your royal status. That's in verse 9. Even as Christians living in America, there will be moments and seasons of life when we do suffer lack, when we won't have an abundance of resources. Some of us have experienced that already, right? Even living in filthy rich America because of the economy and all of that and the cost of living, there are going to be moments when, when we're going to suffer lack, when we're, we're just going to have uh, resources for the basic needs of life to pay your bills and put food on the table, etc., for nothing extra. And in those moments, we need to learn by the grace of God to rise above our circumstances and to remember our vast spiritual resources as children of the King. Amen? James makes this point. Look at verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Please note that right at the beginning of the sentence, and by the way, verses 9 through 11 are one sentence. And so right at the beginning of this sentence, he's addressing brothers. In other words, Christians, those who are in Christ. He's not uh, addressing himself to non-believers. This is evident from the grammar at the beginning of the sentence and in the rest of the paragraph as we're going to see. He's addressing believers here. And so this is a Christian who finds himself in humble circumstances, living by humble means. Verse 9 says he's lowly, which refers in this context to his lowly social status or position or rank. This is the Christian brother who is struggling outside of Palestine to make ends meet Later on, it becomes more evident that this is the case. So mark this. You know, we might make application today to Christians who often lack those basic needs of life. And we're not talking about those who lack those basic needs because of financial irresponsibility or mishandling of money or those things, right? And yes, comparatively speaking, we are rich, but there are struggles because of the cost of living, of a financial nature that we might experience to one extent or another. So this is applicable for us as well as far as principle goes, right? And so what should be our attitude? That's what he's addressing to both individuals here. What should be our attitude when we find ourselves in lowly or humble circumstances, when we find ourselves in times of need, brothers? What should be our attitude? Should we resort to inwardly grumbling at God? to inwardly complaining at the Lord, to resenting the Lord inwardly because we think somehow he's given us the short end of the stick. Is that what we should do? Of course not. Look at verse 9 again. God's word says that this struggling Christian is to boast in his exaltation. Exaltation has the idea there of, of boasting in his high position or in his high status. And the question is, how's that? What high status? I mean, he's, he's poor, isn't he? In what sense does this poor man or woman have a high position or a high status? Well, the answer is that James is not talking here about anything having to do with earthly possessions or earthly wealth or prosperity. Because by the world's standards, this type of poor individual, this type of poor brother has nothing in the eyes of the world, right? Nothing. He's not highly esteemed. But we're not talking about glorying in earthly materialism. We're talking about glorying in, boasting in, or exalting in our high position or in our high status as children of God, as children of the King. 
James essentially says, even if you, if you lack these material things, rejoice in your royal status. In the fact that you are a child of God, you're a child of the, of the king. Because after all, man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Remember that Jesus taught that in the Gospels? We're often reminded in Scripture of this principle. To make sure that we focus our attention on our spiritual resources as citizens of the kingdom instead of on materialism or earthly possessions. Just flip forward a few pages to 1 Peter chapter 1, okay? Look at this. Just a few pages over to your right. 1 Peter chapter 1. And the context here is the beginning of opposition and persecution against these believers by the wicked emperor at the time, Nero. They're already beginning to experience opposition and persecution especially for their faith. And Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Watch this. To an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in what? In material possessions? In the fact that you're not being persecuted? It says, in this salvation, you rejoice from the context, right? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says, don't focus on the opposition. Don't focus on the material possessions that you are lacking. Focus on your great salvation. And in this salvation, in Jesus, what? Rejoice. Rejoice. That's the story of our lives too, brothers. And we need to rejoice in the heavenly blessings that we have in Christ as citizens of the kingdom. Flip forward a couple of pages to 2 Peter chapter 1. Watch this. We can go to so many passages that emphasize the need for us to sort of rise above our circumstances in the midst of lack, right? And see the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, writing to believers. Then he says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, what a privilege. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And he goes on, add virtue after virtue to your faith, right? By the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit of God. But James reminds them there, focus on what God has granted you. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. His precious and magnificent promises because you are in Christ, right? And then 
We don't have time to do this, but sometime go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, where Paul begins and bursts forth into praise, and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, he has called us, he has redeemed us, he has chosen us, he has granted us, lavished us with his love, he's made known to us his will, right? He's given us an inheritance, he's given us the Holy Spirit, he says, who is the pledge or down payment of our possession that's guaranteed for us. On and on, the, the, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, goes through that to say, set your eyes on Christ above, right? Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, set your eyes on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on the things that are on earth, right? For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's my summary, right? Over and over again, it, there's this idea that we need to be looking to Christ and heavenly realities to rejoice in what God has given us in Jesus. We must count our spiritual blessings, right? In the midst of lack. The message of James is Christian. In the midst of trials, in the area of financial lack, remember that there are blessings that God has given you which transcend anything the world has to offer. And all of those blessings are lavishly provided for you in Jesus. Because you are in Christ. This is so important, brothers, for us to be reminded of tonight. So crucial for us. You know why? Because of the sin of materialism that is so rampant in our culture, right? Materialism is such a huge issue in our culture and it infiltrates the church, the church as well because we live amongst people, we're people in the world. We get, our, we get polluted. We get our feet dirty as we walk through life. The name of the game is how much more can I get how much more can I compile? That's the name of the game in our culture. We live in a consumer-driven society that sets our focus on what we don't have rather than counting on the blessings that God has given us, right? Just think about the, the advertising industry. Brothers, millions upon millions of U.S. dollars are spent every single year on reminding us daily about what we don't have and what we should have if we're going to be content, right? The next gadget... The next revision of whatever gadget we want, the next car, the next model, the nicer home, whatever. Our whole system in society is set up that way to foster discontentment in hearts of people in our society. We need to be careful as men of God to guard ourselves from the love of possessions, right? Nothing wrong with having a home. Nothing wrong with having a car. Nothing wrong with having certain things. No, no. You must work hard, and you know what? If the Lord has provided those for you, wonderful. Make sure that you do not set your heart on those things, right? So that you begin to worship them, and you elevate them above God. Remember what Jesus said? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth or rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? Where, brothers? In heaven, right? Cultivate or invest into the kingdom of God rather than on earthly possessions. Note here also in this verse that, that James doesn't cater to poor Christians here, does he? He doesn't pull punches, even with poor believers. He knows that even poor Christians can suffer from greediness and covetousness. That's not just a reality for the rich. We often think, well, the rich are greedy. The rich, rich people are covetous. Wait a minute. Those of us who maybe have a little bit less, right, in comparison, 
can also be equally greedy, equally covetous, wanting what we don't have. Can I get an amen to that? We can struggle with this. James knows that. That these believers can struggle even in their poverty with greediness and covetousness, where instead of cultivating contentment, they can look to others and think, how come I don't have that? And they become envious and jealous and covetous, right? Instead of living within their means, they make the choice of purchasing things they they don't need but want. We'll talk about that later on. There's a difference between what we need as opposed to what we want. And we have to be careful as believers, especially as godly men. James knew that there were believers who can struggle with, instead of cultivating contentment, they can fall into the danger of wallowing in self-pity because of what they, what they don't have, being inwardly resentful towards the Lord because of the fact that they feel like they've received the short end of the stick. Or perhaps struggling with greediness or covetousness may show itself in withholding from God what rightly belongs to Him by means of our offerings to Him out of a joyful heart. We might withhold those things from God, Right? Well, I don't really, I, this month is going to be hard to make it. Well, the question is, how much can you give, right? It's an issue of the heart and generosity and being consistent and making sure that we are laying down our offerings before the Lord first and foremost before His throne. Amen? So those are ways that covetousness and greediness can show itself even for those who are, might be considered poorer in our society amongst believers. What does James say about this? In essence, hey, Christian, when you're experiencing the trial of a a lack of resources, boast in or glory in, exult in your high position and your high status as a child of God, you are, spiritually speaking, royalty in Christ, right? Because the whole focus in the book of James is living life faithfully in the light or anticipation of the king's return, right? We are royal citizens. And by the way, this exhortation in verse 9 is not optional. To glory in our exaltation and those things that, that have to do with our blessings in Jesus. It's not optional. Verse 9 is a, is a present tense imperative. It is a command. We are commanded, the sense is, to continually exalt in or glory in or boast in our exaltation in our high position or high status in Christ. So we don't get a, an out because we may suffer financially. God grants us the grace to live well under financial strain, Right? And so James begins here with the poor believer experiencing lack, but now in verse 10, he moves to the the prospering believer, to the prospering Christian who has an abundance. He's got words for that individual as well. Watch this. What should be the rich brother's response to their riches? Secondly, if you're taking notes, if you're experiencing prosperity, on the other hand, trust not in your wealth. Trust not in your wealth. Now pay attention here because this is really important, okay? Verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation. All in the same flow of thought, right? The instruction to the one in verse 10. Listen, grammatically, verses 9 through 11 is one sentence, one unit of thought, and that is important. Which means that if you're going to be faithful to the text, grammatically speaking, you need to bring down the noun, brother, from verse 9, and the verb, boast, down from verse 9 to verse 10. 
And so by, the text by implication reads this way. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And then verse 10, and the rich implied brother boast in his humiliation. That's the sense of verse 10, grammatically speaking. The grammar and the context dictates this. And you say, Pastor Campus, what is the point of that technicality? Verse 10 is also speaking of a Christian, of a believing rich man, rich person. Not all agree, of course. For example, as I was reading some of the commentators, there are some who have leanings towards socialism. And so historically, they've advocated the view that this is speaking of a, of a non-Christian rich person in verse uh, 10 and following. This is a non-Christian rich person. And that James is favorable toward the poor and condemns the rich. See, socialism is justifiable, right? Because James even justifies it. Not so. That God somehow looks down with favor upon those who are poor, but frowns upon those who are rich, because after all, they got rich by exploiting other people, every single rich person in our society, right? That's what some would say. But James is far from advocating this, as we'll see throughout our study. In fact, one of the things we learn in James is this. Social status in the Christian life, whether rich or poor, is never a sure guarantee that you are experiencing God's favor or not. Did you hear that? Social status in the Christian life, rich or poor, is never a sure, emphasis, a sure guarantee that you are experiencing God's favor or not. It could be. It could be. But it's never a sure sign of God's blessings because there are many poor who are very rich in Christ, aren't they? And in James, we have both believers who are rich and believers who are poor. And the instructions are the same for both of them. And so I think the better... You know, and, I, and as a side note, I've met many miserable rich people in my lifetime, brothers. Have you done the same as well? Many miserable people who are rich in my lifetime, as well as many miserable poor people, both need to guard their hearts. I've also met many happy rich people, generous rich people, kingdom-minded rich people, as well as many happy, kingdom-minded, generous, poor people. And so I think the better view here and the most exegetically consistent view is that verse 10 is referring to a rich Christian. Again, I think the grammar dictates this, but also the context, okay? Look back in verse 2. James has already addressed these readers as my brothers, hasn't he? Again, we talked about the fact that that's not just a title for a fellow Jew, a Jew nationalistic brother, but more importantly, it's a way to address a, a spiritual family member, a brother in the Lord, a Christian. And then in verses 3 through 8, in the passage that Pastor Kellen covered, and as well as verse 2, who is James addressing? Believers, Christians who are experiencing external trials beyond their control, right? And so following the flow of thought, then in verse 9, he once again return, returns to the, addressing them as, as the brother, right? And he returns to address Christians. And then within the same sentence and flow of thought in verse 10, he's addressing believers. So grammatically and contextually, this makes sense, doesn't it? A bit technical, I know, but all that to say verse 10 is referring to a Christian living in the same society who is prosperous. And so James, again, he's not partial. He's not going to pull punches toward the the um, poor brother or toward the rich brother. 
right? He's going to address both the attitude of the poor as well as the attitude of the rich with respect to earthly possessions. What should then be the attitude of the rich Christian? Look at verse 10. The rich brother is to also glory in or boast in his humiliation. His humiliation. On the fact that one day he too will be brought low, right? Just like the, like the poor believer. In what sense? In the sense of his earthly dwelling, as we're going to see. In the sense of his earthly existence. The rich brother is to cultivate the same lowly-mindedness, in other words, that looks beyond the temporal comforts and materials of this world to the infinite riches that he or she has in Christ. That's the point that James is making here. Question. Question. Is James picking on the rich here? What do you think? No, he's not picking on the rich. He's simply putting it this direct and this definitive and this bluntly because it's much more common for a prosperous Christian to forget that his or her dependence should not be on those things. Can I get an amen? Especially in America, brothers, we are susceptible to this, right? To function atheistically in the sense that we say we believe in God, we're dependent upon him, but all the while we we think that we're enough, right? Imperceptibly, we think that we're self-sufficient or we have so much. This is a danger for us. I know it is for me. I struggled with this. How many of us haven't struggled when, when we have much, right? In comparison to when we haven't had enough, when we have much when we have an abundance, aren't we so quick to forget about God? To forget about being God-dependent, to not be prayerful as we would typically be when, when we, we, we have basic needs that are lacking? This is why the Lord Jesus often warned of the dangers of trusting in riches. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. That was in the context, if you remember, of the rich young ruler walking away from Jesus because the text says he had great possessions. And the parallel account in Luke says that he walked away becoming very sad for he was extremely rich. So he walks away from the Lord. See that? Materialism and the love of money. Not the accumulation of wealth, but the love of it, the idolizing of it, the worship of it can become a great distraction and deterrent to our following of after Jesus, to entering the kingdom of God. And then in one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, I just want you to write that down. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, maybe read it in your small groups. Scary text. A stern warning of the danger of living for the stuff of this world. That's the, a parable talking about that rich man who kept storing up his wealth, right? Storehouse and storehouse after storehouse. And he didn't want to give it up and be generous to others. And Jesus basically says, you know what God said to this man? You fool. Your soul is required of you today. Was he able to take one penny with him? Zilch, right? Zero. Jesus says, his point, the, the point is, you need to be rich toward God, not love materialism, because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away, right? So we don't know. We shouldn't love money and worship it for that reason. And so the Lord cautioned us about not loving the stuff of this world, 
about putting our trust in earthly riches, about keeping those things in perspective. Why? Because this life is quickly fleeting. Both the poor and the rich ultimately have the same ending in this lifetime. The rich are just as temporal, right, as the poor. James illustrates this in verse 10, right? And the rich in his humiliation. Why verse 10? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. That's not a pronouncement of of judgment. That's just a statement of, of fact that the rich believer too will pass away. Oh, this is a danger for all of us who are Christians in America. Again, right, brothers? We will not live forever. We will not live forever in the sense of in this earthly life, right? There will be a death. But part of the reason we forget about our transitoriness is because of all that we have, all that we accumulate in this life. All our possessions have a way, if we're not careful, of causing us to be earthly-minded rather than kingdom-minded. By the way, he's not saying that the poor won't also quickly pass away like grass, right? He's simply singling out the rich because it's most often the rich who tend to forget about their transitoriness. The prosperous who tend to lean on what they have instead of trusting in the Lord. And then he expands on this transitoriness. Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Well, that verse reminds me so much about Jesus and how he would often use illustrations from the culture, right? From the agrarian culture of his day to make a point. And it also reminds me of Psalm 90, the psalm that Pastor John Fabares just preached from the pulpit a couple of Sundays ago it was, or weekends ago, right? Where Moses is writing about the eternality of God, and then the fact that we are transient, right? We are transitory. We are not permanent in the sense of who God is in comparison to him. And there the psalmist or Moses reminds us that that permanence is never found in material possessions, but it's found in having a right relationship with God and putting our faith in him. Obviously, we know through, through Christ alone. I love how Spurgeon puts it. He says, here is the story of the grass. Ready? Sown Moan, groan, gone. (laughs) I like that, huh? And so is our life. And so is our life. That summarizes life on earth, doesn't it? You must remember that. That as it pertains to the kingdom, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one, brothers, stands on higher ground, whether rich or poor. I love what one commentator says about this passage. Quote, as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty... So the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. By faith in Christ, the two are equals. End quote. Equals. So true. This is why Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23 and 24 says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. That I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's good, isn't it? No matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we need to trust in the Lord, right? We need to boast only in Him. Glory in the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Let's pause for a second here and consider some lessons, brothers, that we should learn, okay? Before we get into our third point. One, 
I think that as we look at this text, these verses, one, something that stands out to me is this, and I said it a little while ago. We should remember that neither poverty nor prosperity are a sure sign of God's favor upon you, okay? It could be, but it's not a sure sign and a guarantee. There are people who get rich by crooked ways, right? There are people who are poor because God has them in particular circumstances where he's growing them in the midst of those circumstances. Neither poverty nor prosperity are a sure sign of God's favor. Secondly, in either life situation, wherever you find yourself, relative to society, we should cultivate a heart of contentment. We should cultivate a heart of contentment. Those who suffer need or lack must work hard with their own hands, cultivating contentment, looking to entrust themselves to to God who clothes the lilies of the field and, and feeds the birds of the air. Amen? That's what he does. Are we not worth more than they, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? And then those who experience prosperity must not trust in those riches, but instead cultivate contentment and invest their resources in eternal things. I love what Randy Alcorn says, something along these lines. You can't take a penny or money to the next life, but you can surely send it ahead, right? How so? How so? By investing it into eternal things, into people, into the kingdom of God. That's how. And you see, this is a big part of the trial of the rich, right? To make sure that they don't imperceptibly begin to trust in what they have in the bank, in investments, in retirement, etc., 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 instead of practicing generosity and being rich toward who? Toward God. Toward Him. And again, let me be clear. If you have any or all of those wonderful things, if you have them, they're not wrong in and of themselves, are they? They're not It's when you elevate those things above God. It's when you idolize those things, you worship those things, that they become problematic in our lives. Third lesson is that we should always be evaluating what our real needs are. This gets into that whole conversation about the nature of what a need is, doesn't it? Passages like these. We often use expressions like, I need this or I really need that. But so much, brothers, of what we consider a need is no more than a want. And at the end of the day, what are our needs? Ever ask yourself that? What are really our needs? I think Jesus defined what our most basic needs are in Matthew 6.25. He mentioned our needs in consisting of what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your, your body, he says, what you will put on. He says, here are the basic needs of life, what you need for survival. Food, water, clothing, shelter you might throw in there are the most basic needs. Those are the things that we need for survival at the end of the day. Most of our brethren in third world countries, that's what it comes down to for them. Sometimes they don't even have shelter like we do, or clean water the way that we do. And so we must check our hearts Does this mean that nothing else is necessary? No. We need a job. We need a home to live in. We need a car to get around, go to our job, go to church. We need a phone to communicate with, etc., right? But the point is we have to keep those things in perspective. Not set our hearts on those things. Not derive our joy from those things. Write this text down. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10 talks about Paul warning Timothy there about the danger of loving money. He says, for the love of money, watch out, Timothy. 
says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, right? And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. Love, longing, that's the issue. Not the accumulation of money or possessions, right? Or property by holy means and hard work by the grace of God. But the love of those things. Setting our affections on those things. Elevating those things above God. And those things then become a problem in our lives. When we store up treasures on earth rather than invest them into the kingdom, that's problematic. All right, we've run out of time, but finally, write this one down, brothers. Third, in either case, fix your eyes on your future reward. Fix your eyes on your future reward. Trials have that function, don't they? When we experience fiery trials, it makes us long all the more for heaven and for our future reward. Look at verse 12. It really sums up the the opening section of James dealing with external trials which come upon us unexpectedly in the Christian life. Verse 12, blessed, he says, makarios, blessed or happy is a great translation. How many of us want to be happy in this room? Wow, not very many of us want to be happy. I guess you want to, how many of us want to be miserable? Oh, okay. We all want to be happy, don't we? He says, blessed or happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Steadfast. Hupamane. It's a word which literally means to abide or remain under our trials. Sometimes translated endurance in the Christian life. Some of you lift weights, right? Maybe you're able to bench press a lot of poundage. Maybe you're able to bench pressing and remain under 300 or 400 pounds, okay? I don't need any hands right now, okay? Don't be a show-off, right? So I probably can't even bench press 100 right now. Shame. But you weren't always there, right? You weren't always able to endure that kind of weight, to remain or abide under. The more that you've lifted over time, the more endurance you've gained. You've been strengthened, right? And that's the idea here, that trials have the function of building endurance, steadfastness in the Christian life. They have a strengthening effect in your life and in my life. What a great reminder that they're absolutely profitable in our lives. And then there's the wonderful reality that some, something greater awaits us. Amen? What's our future reward if we endure? Look at verse 12 again. For when he... The Christian under trial has stood the test, underline that, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That verb there translated has stood the test is the Greek word dokimas, from a verb dokimazo. It means testing something for the sake of approval, to test something for the sake of approval. It was used of the testing of metals or of gold to determine its, its authenticity or its genuineness back in these times. That's the function, brothers, of trials in our lives, right? To bring about the approval of our lives. Not in a salvific way, if we're in Christ, only Christ's work accomplished that, amen? But in the sense of the the fruit in our lives being brought about by the power of the Spirit of God. And notice the future reward for us to joyfully anticipate. Verse 12, he will receive, this one who perseveres or endures, will receive the crown of life. Literally the crown which consists of life. And people in those days in the Greco-Roman world would have understood what this is. It's that, that laurel wreath or the feastal crown that was given to those who would win a race or an athletic event in those days. It was the reward for the, the victor, the one who won the race or the athletic event. 
Now, for the Christian, it's something much greater, right? Much greater than something temporal for the believer. What is our reward? It's life, he says. The sense is the crown which consists of life. Quantity and quality of life is our reward, brothers. And we know, obviously, that this is in the presence of our great king, the Lord Jesus, right? Who I long to see. Nothing can take this from us. He adds in verse 12, which the Lord has promised. It's not ultimately on us or our performance, etc. He's promised this life in Christ to those who love him. If you belong to him, if you love him, which is the greatest distinguishing mark of the Christian, if you love him, he will deliver on the reward. Amen? Why? Because he's promised it, brothers, in Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we long for the day when we will see you, when we will be rewarded because of the finished work of King Jesus. But until that time, Father, we know that testings and trials are part and parcel of the Christian life. Lord, grant us the grace by your Spirit to embrace difficulties, to embrace what you bring into our lives for your glory and for our good. Help us to learn to live well by your grace under our trials so that we might be salt and light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.